Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, read me on Bleach Report, and follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker and on Instagram at Rick underscore Buker. This is part three of my stories from the Warriors' old home. Let's see if I can speed up this stroll down memory lane that is up to now three podcasts and counting. And I know I could have done a Bill Simmons and just produced one big mega mess of a podcast on the subject, but the truth is that I've needed time to sift through everything. Uh, Just so we're clear... I covered the Warriors as a beat writer starting in 1992 when I took over for the late Ron Bergman and uh, did so until I left the Washington Post in 1998. Been covering the NBA ever since, and so lots happened. Lots gone on. I was gone exactly a year before ESPN hired me away from the Post and I returned to the Bay Area. At that point, though, I was a full-blown national writer. My return to anything close to working the Warriors as a beat came in 2012 when I left ESPN and took a full-time local radio gig, essentially so I could be around to see my kids grow up. That's also when the Warriors, President Rick Welts to be specific, reached out to me about being the team sideline reporter. Now with the TV studios about three blocks from the radio studios and Mark Jackson who I'd worked with at ESPN as fellow analysts on NBA Tonight, among other things, with him taking over as head coach, I thought it would be a perfect second gig to doing radio. I mentioned Welts and Jackson for a reason that I'll get into before we're done, if not in this podcast, in the next one. Now, covering the Warriors beat in the 90s meant one covering one of the biggest meltdowns of a franchise in league history. Maybe two, but certainly one. And it also entailed learning what it's like to cover a team with no home. Now, in the previous podcast, I promised to tell you about an exchange I had with Charles Barkley and something Weber whispered to Barkley when they met in the playoffs at the end of Weber's rookie year, which was his one year with the Warriors. I remember back to the playoff series, 94 playoff series, first round, best of five, 
Weber went behind the back and dunked on Chuck. It was the one positive highlight the Warriors had, and the one time Charles didn't get the better of the Warriors in that series. Uh, in, in the one game at Oakland Coliseum Arena, this was game three of the best of five series, Phoenix was already up 2-0, and uh, Don Nelson had Byron Houston guard Charles one-on-one for the first three quarters. The plan being that Chuck would score at will, but he'd be the only one doing so. And then in the fourth quarter, the Warriors would double him, force the other Suns, who had not been getting shots all game, to do all the scoring. Chuck didn't make any secret of the fact that Byron couldn't guard him, was yelling literally at the bench, you need to get somebody else who can who can guard me, and which was uh, classic Chuck. In any event, Nelly's strategy didn't work. Uh, Barkley ended up with 56 points, and but if you watch the highlights of that Weber dunk, afterward he can be seen whispering something in Barkley's ear near the stanchion, and what he whispered was, "I want to be just like you." Which, now, looking back at their careers, equal parts entertaining and controversial, criticized for not doing everything they could have with their God-given talent, both stellar but falling short of winning rings, moving around more than players of their caliber ever should have in that era, and then even going on to have broadcasting careers for Turner, sometimes even sharing the same desk on TNT. I'd say Weber did a pretty damn remarkable job of doing exactly what he hoped to do. I also remember at the time, though, that Charles was not flattered or impressed, and I don't know where their relationship is now. I don't know if it's it's had to have thawed a little bit, but I never got the sense that Chuck was all that enamored with Weber wanting to be the next Charles Barkley. Uh, It was also after that game that Charles asked me to pass his number along to a young female intern who was working for the Warriors PR staff. She was, if I'm not mistaken, a University of Arizona undergrad with family in the Bay Area. That's why she was doing the internship there. In any event, she told me later that when Charles called her, she thought it was someone pulling a joke on her. So she asked him, if you're really Charles, we made eye contact during the game twice. When was it? Charles was able to tell her the first time was in the second quarter as he was headed to the bench for a timeout. And the second time he was standing at the free throw line about to take his second shot. If I'm not mistaken, she walked along the baseline. And he nailed it. Those were the two times. And I just... Never forgot that. I learned so much from that whole thing. First of all, no qualms about seeing somebody and figuring out I need to get a number for that. And the second part was in the midst of the game, I mean, (laughs) we're talking a playoff game. He's dragging the Warriors, or maybe because he was dragging the Warriors, he also had the presence of mind to be scouting the sidelines. Uh, And... For what it's worth, yes, to my knowledge, they did hook up. Don't know what happened. Don't care. But uh, they they connected, shall we say. Now, about that meltdown. 
it's funny when I think about how much I learned beyond basketball about the culture of the NBA through all that went down with the Warriors during that time. Uh, including going out to Weber's house in an East Bay gated community, for instance. More than once I'd go out there, Weber would forget to leave my name at the gate, which meant I had to sit in my car just beyond the gatehouse and repeatedly call him to get him to call the gatehouse. And unfortunately, Weber was ahead of his time as someone who lets calls go to voicemail. I don't know that I ever left without actually seeing him, but there were times I'm sure I waited a couple of hours. It was a good thing that I was young and I was single and I was hungry. I don't know if in this day and age that I would have had the patience or that at some point I wouldn't have read Weber the, the riot act for, for wasting my time. Any event, I guess I went out to his house two, three times and, and in all that time, and this is, he was only there a year, but he never had it fully furnished. It looked about like how I would have had it midway through my time at college, which is about the same timeline for his age. Now, for me, it was a great lesson in that physical size and a big bank account and loads of fame doesn't necessarily make anyone particularly mature. There's becoming a great basketball player, and then there's learning how to do the rest of life. And I think of those, all those million-dollar mansions that I would drive by up these quiet streets and the perfectly manicured lawns. And here was a 20-year-old kid in sweatpants and a baggy T-shirt playing at being adult, playing video games, watching the living room TV that was over the fireplace from the counter in the kitchen because the bar, the bar stools were the only place to sit uh, at the kitchen counter, uh, eating takeout. And as it turned out, preparing to upend an NBA franchise. Uh, the one room that I remember that was particularly tricked out, it was his upstairs music recording studio, uh, but that was about it. Uh, the, ne- the neighborhood itself felt like a lot of old money in the possession of old people. And this was a kid with new money trying to figure out how to live on his own a long way from home, all while battling a... Hall of Fame coach, and looking to raise what was essentially a fun little franchise into a snarling world beater. Good luck. Not that I put the onus, don't get me wrong, I don't put the onus for what happened on Weber. I put almost none of it on him, to be honest. Everybody's got a part. But the Warriors were the ones, after all, who drafted him in a way, against his wishes, since he dreamed of A, being a power forward, and B, playing alongside Shaq in Orlando, who had the number one pick. All he was asking from Chris Cohan, the owner, was that he be able to come to him with any issues that he might be having with Nelson. And Cohan, in his infinite unfamiliarity with how the NBA works, sided with his coach and GM and refused. And I remember having a conversation with Dan Finan, who was the previous owner, and he said without equivocation that if he'd had to make the decision, Nelly would be would have been gone. That he understood the the talent that Weber was, and uh, in this day and age in the NBA, or then even then, y- you go with the talent. 
coaches can be replaced. Uh, the Chris Webbers of the world for teams like Golden State could not. Now, for all of Nelly's misgivings about Weber, which I covered in the previous podcast, the team itself did not feel that way at all. They knew how talented he was and how much of a difference he could make in their fortunes. And because he was such a gifted passer, an unselfish uh, passer, they loved him even more. So when Weber opted out of his contract and he didn't report to training camp, the players didn't actually believe the Warriors would go through and trade him. The belief was it was just a matter of when, not if he'd show up. And that carried them through the first eight games of the season. Even without Weber, they went 7-1. and one. And then the trade went down. Traded him to the Washington Bullets for Tom Gugliotta and three future first-round picks, essentially giving them a young replacement power forward and restoring the picks they'd given up to Orlando to get Weber in the first place. But shortly after Gugliotta showed up and they saw him in, in the first couple practices, Nelson was overheard telling one of his assistants, this trade is going to get us fired. As indeed it did at the All-Star break. After that 7-1 and one start, the team went 7-30. and 30. And Cohan cleared house. Uh, longtime scout Ed Gregory took over as GM. Bob Lanier took over as head coach. And then Gregory wasted no time trading Gugliotta to Minnesota for Daniel Marshall. Now, the Warriors were playing the Sonics in the first game after the trade was announced. And I remember Sonics coach George Carl saw Montgomery in the hallway outside the locker rooms before the game. And Carl had this big grin on his face and said, Man, that trigger finger didn't shake a bit. The, uh, the backstory on that is when Nelson, serving only as GM, fired Carl with 18 games left in the 87-88 regular season, it was Gregory who did the mopped-up duty as the head coach. And then Nelson took over as both head coach and GM the following year. Uh, moral to the story, the NBA is indeed a small world. Now... Lanier is one of the nicest human beings ever. And he wanted to be an NBA head coach in the worst way. And the fact that he wound up as the Warriors head coach was really just a set of unusual, unlikely circumstances. He had been, he had been added to the coaching staff at the last second. And it was in hopes of forging a relationship with Weber, drawing on his days in Detroit, where... Weber was from as a star for the Pistons and being an all-around skilled big man and just a really good dude. Now, Donnie Nelson was the first assistant, but he was fired along with his dad. Rod Higgins never really had head coaching aspirations, and Al Adels, the only other assistant, had given up coaching of any kind more than a decade earlier. So kind of fell to uh, Lanier. I'm not even sure Al traveled with the team even at that stage. So the staff kind of gives you an idea also how Nelly was hoping to keep the peace with Weber, I suppose. It wasn't, wasn't going to be Nelly directly, but he was going to have enough go-betweens to, to try to make it work. Uh, my biggest memory from that stretch for that, for that team is that um, I'll never forget walking into the coach's office 
for a pregame interview with Lanier sometime in March. And we asked him about Carlos Rogers, who was a gifted but very high-strung player. And all of a sudden, Lanier started weeping. And I mean, it was it was so quiet, and he kind of bowed his head. And uh, Matt Steinmetz, uh, who is now a radio host in the Bay Area, it was the only other one, other guy there. It was it was the two of us, and it was it was just couldn't believe what what we were seeing. I mean, it's March. It's a it's not a very good team. There's nothing. Couldn't figure it out. I was like, what the hell? And so Lanier excuses himself, and <laughs> Matt and I are sitting there for a second, just kind of looking at each other, eyebrows raised, wondering what's going to happen next. Lanier returns. He's dabbing at his eyes with a paper towel. And then he, he went into explaining how he had been trying so hard to reach Carlos and some of the other young players, and he just couldn't, he couldn't connect with them, couldn't, couldn't motivate them. And... I've seen uh, I've seen Lanier and basketball without borders. He's an infectious guy. He can take a room full of strangers and get them hyped. And so, in hindsight, I understand why it affected him so deeply. But it was it was just that was weird. Now, uh, two lasting memories of Carlos. Uh, first was we were in Miami's Coconut Grove. And there was a guy on the street making those intergalactic landscape paintings with a variety of spray cans and bowls or cutouts. It's, it's the kind of thing you see routinely at fairs and carnivals. And uh, Rogers was fascinated. He thought this was extraordinary art and bought like a half dozen of them. Uh, by the way, this is the same trip in Miami the team gets off the bus. I'm at the team hotel, basically waiting for them to roll in. And there is a woman, older woman, very well endowed, who sees Lanier come off the bus and her eyes just light up and kind of follows the team and everyone into the hotel. And I remember, I remember seeing Lanier the next morning and... I, uh, I I said something like, uh, "Man, she had you in her crosshairs." And Lanier looks at me, gets this kind of sheepish grin, and he goes, "And they were real too," and starts laughing. So, um, again, most of no, I wouldn't say most, but uh, a great deal of what I learned covering the. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Warriors in those years when they were playing really bad basketball was just the hijinks and how crazy the NBA life can really be. And I think there's something about teams that are that are bad uh, 
that uh, they have their guard down, or maybe it's that's a function of it. They're just sloppy. And so as a result, you learn a lot about what's going on behind the scenes. Maybe more so you do when teams are buttoned up and they're going for it. I would certainly say that was the case. Uh, the Warriors in the heyday the last few years, it's been much harder to have a sense of exactly what's going on behind the scenes compared uh, to those days. The other uh, Rogers story was in Portland. Uh, and it was the last game of the year, and he seemed particularly out of sorts. Again, very weird situation, a little bit like Lanier, you know, weeping in his in his office. Uh, it's the last game of the year. They're playing out the string. Uh, they're just getting throttled, and he gets teed up and kicked out of the game. And it just seemed strange. Uh, they, they'd lost in double OT the night before in, in Denver, so kind of understandable that now they were getting blown out by by the Blazers. Uh, but I was told later that it was because Carlos had received a call at halftime alerting him that an angry relative was breaking the windows in his house back in the Bay. And uh, those were the kind of weird stories that were constantly happening with the team, seemingly from most of the six, six seasons that I covered them as a beat writer. Um, then again, they were different times. I mean, this was a time when you could walk into the locker room and you'd find Hardaway pouring a couple of cans of beer in one of those tall plastic tumblers you can get at 7-Eleven to soothe his aching knees. And as beat writers, we knew that if Tim wasn't very talkative the first time we approached him, all we had to do is let him get about halfway into that tumbler, go check in with some other people around the locker room, and then circle back and we'd get all we wanted and more. The next iteration of the Warriors came while they were renovating the arena, which meant that they played their games down in the Shark Tank in San Jose and were practicing wherever they could, sometimes out at St. Mary's College. And I remember at least one weekend practice where they had turned the heat off because no one from the school was scheduled to be in the gym. So janitors weren't expecting that a professional uh, basketball team was going to show up. You could see your breath. I also remember this was, I remember walking in and uh, I was lowly beat writer. wasn't making a whole lot of money, but I had bought a, uh, a used Fendi. I'd seen a Fendi, I don't know, in a watch store or at Nordstrom someplace. And I just liked it. And it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't new. Uh, so I could afford it. And I remember walking in and Ala Abdel Nabi saw it, went, ah, Fendi. That was also one of my lessons, that players are cognizant of whether beat writers have any fashion sense or not. And the whole ink-stained wretch and not dressing, I mean, you see guys now, it's it's gone a little too far. I see guys who are wearing suits who I don't know that they're doing TV gigs that night, but... It just seems a little overkill. I'm I'm going to wear a suit if I have to be on TV. I'm going to wear a suit if I have to. And if I have to wear a suit, I'm going to wear a nice suit, a, a, a nice tie, whatever it is. But if I don't have to, uh, I'm uh, feels like putting on airs to be wearing a suit. That's just me. I'm not taking that as criticism to anybody who's dressing to the nines for uh, for games to write. But I, I don't know. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Anyway, 
Um, this is also that team at that time was the first time I witnessed great players uh, playing in the backcourt together and openly snubbing each other, which was what was going on between Tim Hardaway and Latrell Sprewell. I also learned that not every draft is created equal. Now, the tough part of the beef between Hardaway and Spree for a beat writer is that they almost forced you to pick sides. Spree was admittedly a wild child whose refusal to suck up to the media or even traffic in the expected cliches gave him the image of this <laughs> this guy spawned by the devil. I mean, he just he had a really bad reputation at that time. Respected as a player, but uh, the dark side was probably the side that uh, the media was most dialed into. Uh, there was the time that he got into a fight with Byron Houston. Uh, there was a later incident where he got into it with Jerome Kersey and uh, couldn't get better of, of Romeo the way he did Byron. And so supposedly went and found a two-by-four somewhere in the Oakland arena and <laughs> headed, back to the, headed back to the court carrying that. Teammates intervened, and so it didn't get worse. But um, there was also one of his pit bulls attacking his daughter. And um, she, was, she was badly hurt. And when Spree was asked about it, uh, he showed very little emotion talking about it. In fact, I think I, there was one point somebody was asking him about it, and he kind of had this, it's not a smile, but I, well, yeah, I guess it was. Um, kind of smiled at the question. And uh, I think it was, it was a, que- a, a question about having the dog put down. And so all of that came off really badly. Uh, honestly, gave him the appearance to those, I mean, looking around at the scrum, I remember there was people who had a look in their eye like, this is just a cold-blooded monster. Um, but I'd gotten to know Spree a little bit through some of the other guys on the team, and I knew a little bit about his background, and I understood that in Spree's mind, it, it wasn't the dog's fault. He was just being a dog. Did he care about his daughter, and was he distraught about her being attacked? Of course he was. But he wasn't going to shed tears in front of the media or even let anyone with a pen or camera or microphone know that he was distraught. It wasn't how Spree ticked. To him, a public display like that would have looked weak. And from what I know about how he grew up, never showing any weakness was considered a key to survival. Now, Hardaway was the exact opposite, at least with the media. He'd act tough at times, but ultimately he'd give us exactly what what we wanted: beers or no beers. And and I mean exactly. When he blew out his knee in '93, the late George Shirk of the San Francisco Chronicle, who I will always remember, in the midst of a game, turning to me and asking, "How do you spell Thermopylae?" Uh, with some analogy that he he wanted. He wanted to use. Uh, that was George. But uh, George was also the one that, as Hardaway crutched his way out of the locker room that day to a car waiting to take him to the hospital, uh, George said, uh, up until now, Tim, did you think you were bulletproof? 
And Hardaway dutifully said, as if he had come up with the line all his own, up until now, I thought I was bulletproof. And Shirk, after scribbling that note or that quote into his notebook, looked at me and winked. And the next day, it was the first quote in every story in every paper. But for all the misery of the previous season, the Warriors were rewarded with the number one pick. And they ended up taking Joe Smith out of Maryland. And that was, I remember distinctly, there were four guys that were in the mix. Joe Smith, Jerry Stackhouse, Antonio McDice, and Rasheed Wallace. Now, the truth is, I'm not sure any one of those guys would have had a profound effect on the Warriors' fortunes the following season. But it was made worse by the fact that Joe was a follower and he chose to follow Spree, who could party like a rock star and still play like one. Not everybody can. Joe was one of those who could not, and it showed. Now, I don't know if it was Sheed. I don't know how much better that would have gone. Stack would have been a little, would have been duplication for talent that they had. Antonio McDice, in looking back, probably would have been the the smartest play for uh, draft uh, who they drafted. But they weren't sold on just how smart Antonio was. We had questions about his basketball IQ. Uh, athletically, he was twice what, what Joe was. And again, looking at these guys through the prism of what their careers ended up being, you could say any one of those three would have been better than Joe. But uh, and I say this all the time when it comes to drafts, who you're drafted by, the system that you're in, the uh, stability of the franchise, the talent around you, all of that has a huge impact on ultimately what you become. And I, you know, you could say the same for Sheed. I don't know that Sheed was uh, all that when uh, he was in Washington. And ultimately, though, we saw what he could be. Uh, you know, pound for pound, ability-wise, uh, he he should have been one of the greatest power forwards of all time. Uh, just talent. I've, I mean, I could go into all the things that he can do. Pound for pound, a more talented player than Tim Duncan. But Tim's focus, Tim, again, the uh, program, being in San Antonio, being with Pop, all that was a game changer. But no, nobody gave, gave Tim a, a better run for his money than Rasheed Wallace. Kevin Garnett, nah. That was the big battle. That was the, the matchup that everybody talked about. Sheed was a much tougher cover uh, for Tim and did a much better job of defending Tim. So, for what it's worth. For you gun, young guns, want to know a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, back to the Warriors. Uh, so Joe's following Spree, and it's not working. Now, Rick Adelman was the coach, and he did one of the, quite honestly, one of the most remarkable jobs ever getting that team to 36 and 46. Doesn't sound like much, but for what he was working with, pretty impressive. They were in the playoff hunt down to the final weeks of the season, and this was in the days when that kind of record had you in the hunt for a playoff spot in the West. Now, 
They weren't picking quite as high the following year, but they screwed up just as badly. In an attempt to improve the culture that the Spree Hardaway uh, tiff had created, uh, GM Dave Twardzik drafted a big center from North Carolina State named Todd Fuller. Devout Christian, crew cut, but far from a lottery talent. They took him 11th. For the record, you, you look it up, Kobe went 13th, Peja Stojakovic went 14th, Steve Nash 15th, Jermaine O'Neal 17th, and Zudrunas Elgalskis 20th. Any and all of them were profoundly better than Todd. And so you want to know how you go 12 seasons between playoff appearances? You draft Joe Smith and Todd Fuller instead of Rasheed Wallace and Jermaine O'Neal. Now, when P.J. Carlissimo arrived to replace Adelman, I was already sort of on my way out and aware that the Warriors weren't going to get out of their hole because they were once again doing things backward. They hired P.J. as the coach first, and then had him hire the GM he wanted, Gary St. Jean. Uh, the biggest incident of that season, of course, came 14 games in when Spree put his hands around P.J.'s neck. And the world came down on Spree. Hard. Sports Illustrated's illustrious writer, Frank DeFord, I remember this, wrote a 10-page piece in the aftermath about what an extraordinary human being P.J. was. And it was accompanied by a two-page piece. I don't remember who read it, uh, wrote it uh, on what essentially what a scoundrel spree was. And to be honest, I lost a little respect for both DeFord, who was an early role model of mine, and SI, who selected me for a summer internship that inspired me to pursue a career in sports writing in the first place. They didn't... He looked, uh, looked at DeFord and looked at SI as... Uh, writer and and publication that gets it right and I felt like they got this very wrong because it was just so much that wasn't taken into consideration for why it happened first Spree really liked Adelman who was much as much a player's coach as PJ was not second in the previous six or seven months they had traded away every single player that Spree felt remotely close to or had any respect for. Billy Owens, Chris Mullen, and B.J. Armstrong were the last ones out the door. The incident also occurred with the team sitting on a record of 1-13 to start the season. So you get rid of all the guys that he likes, that he's played with, that he respects, and you start 1-13. Frustrated and angry about being left holding the bag doesn't begin to describe what Spree was feeling at that point. And if P.J. had just been the coach and St. Gene were a true GM, i.e. the architect of this mess, maybe Spree wouldn't have gone after P.J. But he rightfully saw him as the perpetrator of, of, of everything. And so the last thing he wanted to hear was P.J. telling him to put a little mustard on his passes as if the reason for the Warriors' 1-13 start was uh, a lack of crisp passing or attention to detail. Spree had had 45 points in the season opener on 57% shooting, and it didn't matter. Warriors lost by 16 to the Minnesota Timberwolves. My takeaway from it all, as I was about to embark on a career as a national writer, 
Don't let distance or reputations throw up a smokescreen on what is really going on. All right. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless. And you know what that's, this means. There will be a fourth and final, my story, hopefully, my stories from the Warriors' old home. Still to be covered. Uh, got a chance to play in the All-Star Celebrity Game, although for some reason Wikipedia does not acknowledge that All-Star Game started in 2000. Uh, we'll cover the return of both Mullen and Nelly. Uh, an olive branch extended to me from Nelly, sort of. And the new and jarring perspective I got seeing the Warriors up close closer than ever, actually, as their sideline reporter for two years. Uh, In the next podcast, Ryan Hollins and I will chew over LeBron's AAU antics along with a conversation about if it's time for the NBA to let go of Team USA and let it return to the auspices of the amateur ranks now that we're having all of these defections once again. Uh, Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want us to do something for you, screenshot the review and send it to at Buker Friends. Also, please do me a favor. I'm thinking of giving away a never worn pair of Kobe Air Force One mids, size 12. They're black and purple with the sparkly gold laces. Uh, They're the shoes that he wore during the 2002-03 season. Now, I'm thinking a sneakerhead or Kobe fan might like them just to have, if not wear. But let us know. If that doesn't cut it as as a prize, we'll roll something better out. So hit us at Buker Friends and let us know. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com